Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alpha. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the fallout of the number 10 Christmas party. And you ask us, why doesn't Labour oppose the Tories on drug reform? So we're recording the morning after a very big day in number 10, um, the fallout from a video clip that ITV got hold of that shows Allegra Stratton, the former spokesperson for COP, practising doing a televised press conference. The press conferences that never actually happened in the end, joking about how she would answer a question about whether or not Downing Street staff had a Christmas party last December. I've just seen reports on Twitter that there was a Downing Street Christmas party on Friday night. Do you recognise those reports? <laughs> I went home. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, uh, uh, Would the Prime Minister condone uh, having a Christmas party? What's the answer? I don't know. I didn't want the party. It was cheese and wine. Just be clear, it's not. Is cheese and wine all right? No. It was a business no. meeting. <laughs> I'm joking. It's recorded. It's a fictional party. It was a business meeting. And it was not socially distanced. Obviously, um, there's been a lot of reports about this party that the government has been denying ever happened. Boris Johnson apologised at PMQs for what the video suggested, but still insisted there hadn't been this party. That I understand and share the anger up and down the country at seeing number 10 staff seeming to make light of lockdown measures. And I can understand how infuriating it must be to think that the people who have been setting the rules have not been following the rules, Mr Speaker, because I was also furious to see that clip. And, Mr Speaker, I apologise. I apologise unreservedly for the offence that it has caused up and down the country, and I apologise for the impression that it gives. But I repeat, Mr Speaker, that I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged, that there was no party and that, and that no COVID rules were broken. And that is what I have been repeatedly assured. Anna Allegra Stratton resigned in tears. Um, as well as that, uh, new measures were introduced to try and control the spread of the Omicron variant, which amount to Plan B, which was Plan B of the government's winter plan, uh, which means mandatory mask wearing, which they had actually um, brought back in fairly recently, vaccine passports for big events, 
to, I mean, I suppose there are other rules, but also Boris Johnson and, and Carrie Johnson have just announced the birth of their baby girl to, to add to the drama. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot going on in there. Um. Of, of all the people in the world, surely Boris Johnson has the biggest main character energy <laughs> of anyone. <laughs> it's all going on. It is all going on. Um, so, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways that we can talk about this, but... One of the suggestions is that um, the government isn't going to manage to announce any particularly strong restrictions because it is so clear that it hasn't been playing by its own rules. This virus isn't defeated. We're going to face other tests where the British people may be asked by their leaders to make further sacrifices for the greater good. Her Majesty the Queen sat alone when she marked the passing of the man she'd been married to for 73 years leadership, sacrifice, that's what gives leaders the moral authority to lead. Does the Prime Minister think he has the moral authority to lead and to ask the British people to stick to the rules? Not not only that, Mr Speaker, but uh, the Labour Party and the, the, the Labour leader in particular have played politics, have played politics, Mr Speaker, throughout Throughout this pandemic, pandemic, uh, the leader of the opposition in particular has done nothing uh, but play politics uh, to try to muddy the waters, uh, to confuse the public and uh, and to cause needless confusion about the guidance. Uh, The public, Mr Speaker, have not been so confused and they have not been fooled. Although... Ipsos Mori have been saying that that people in polling have been saying that they're just as willing to sort of follow rules. So it's been Labour's line that it's kind of undermined the trust in government and the pandemic response. What, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, I think if you look at the polls and indeed, you know, if you just like talk to anyone, it's pretty clear it has undermined trust in the government and therefore trust in the government's ability to get the pandemic response right but broadly what are the two things that you can do to combat um well i was about to say a novel pandemic but really any disease right you can enter some kind of quarantine measures which is effectively what a lockdown is you can treat it with medical advances whether that is clinical treatments like the various new drugs and i'm not going to attempt to pronounce and the various vaccines um and obviously for those to work, you need to people need to be willing to take the new treatments, get their vaccinations, or if need be, to enter quarantine. And I think people will, will do those things sort of with no real regard to what the government has done. I think people are, yeah, purely anecdotally, I think most people find the sort of psychic toll of doing a proper lockdown too hard to contemplate. And that I think remains the bigger problem if, if if the government were to try and pull the lever marked, let's do another one of these, uh, in terms of it actually working. In terms of the political consequences of trying to, to do another one, because although, you know, I said on the radio this morning this was a nice lockdown and then immediately had to kind of do like, obviously, it's not great if you are in, you know, um, a small flat or, you know, for a variety of other reasons. But... Ultimately, this is like a lockdown where you don't have to go into the office unless you, you know, in which many people work remotely, um, but you can still come in and, you know, party and socialise and you don't have a rule of six. So it's not like this is a lockdown and 
many people are going to go, oh, God, you know, I'm so angry with Boris Johnson than I am going to, like, slide into my car on the North Circular just to stick it to the boss. I think it's a big problem that I don't see how he would be politically strong enough internally to have a further lockdown. And, yeah, and also I think the real concern is what if people go further than the letter of the law, as they did in in March, and actually, like, pretty much throughout the country has been has has self-locked down before it has been asked to do so. I would actually say I think the bigger risk is that because there is simply no prospect that he would be able to get the Chancellor or the Cabinet to sign off on the economic support measures from the last lockdown again, is do we end up in a situation where we have de facto lockdown, but we don't have any of the economic support measures, you therefore have a very painful winter for retail, hospitality, other parts of the economy, and then you therefore have a much more economically painful um, lockdown than the last ones. But also, like, let's be honest, at the moment, these are all changes that really don't impinge on people's lives in any meaningful way. Like they've sort of done the big song and dance of a big emergency press conference and sort of scary sounding language. But in most ways, the way people have been living at the moment won't change very much. You know, there are no restrictions on the number of people that you can see or the ways in which you can see them. And I mean, a lot of people have still just been working from home mm. um, where they can anyway. And a lot of the people who haven't been in many cases, you know, didn't necessarily want that to be the case anyway. And I think guidance, you know, work from home if you can. Exactly. It's means very loose. That, yeah, I think that uh, the thing we've talked about this before, not on the podcast, that I'm, I'm really struck that with the friends who aren't doctors or teachers or in, in jobs like that, they have been working from home this entire time and maybe just going into the office one day a week. I know that's not the same for all workplaces, but I do actually think that working from home is still kind of the norm for huge swathes of the economy at the moment. And so advice that you should continue to do that doesn't really change that much. It means that actually for the past six months or however long, the you know there has been a huge legacy of lockdown that hasn't really changed for many people, that they're still going out in the evenings maybe and seeing their friends a bit more, socialising a bit more. They can go into the office, but I think like lots and lots of people are still working from home. Mm. So it's more like this is a... This is the pretense of the charade of a really serious announcement that's, you know, remarkably well timed <laughs> um, to, to slightly divert the conversation from speaking to the people I know who don't work in politics. I don't think that any of them see this as a massive change. So is it was it a sort of device to distract from the terrible headlines that Downing Street have been getting because of this Christmas party that that they're still saying there wasn't? <laughs> yes, well, because they, they aren't ready to actually introduce these new vaccine passport plans until next week. Mm -hmm. And I think they only received the direction to do that at the Department for Health late the night before, which was, you know, brilliant timing after the Allegra Stratton video. So I think that like these were measures that they were considering introducing. And so there's a genuine need to do them. But the, it, w it was sort of extraordinary timing that maybe was influenced by other events. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I don't think it that these measures have been introduced as a distraction. I think to do kind of a, an obnoxious, like a columnist kind of cute intro of like what connects these two things is actually a lot like the timing of Keir Starmer's reshuffle. 
Like, why did Keir Starmer do this reshuffle um, when he did? They know that there is a that no one really knows what's going to happen in North Shropshire, um, but there's obviously the possibility, right, that like the Labour Party could lose its deposit, be squeezed by the Lib Dems, who have like a good second, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Party could freak out, polls could shift. So then, okay, well things look good for us in the polls now. So now's the time to do this big set of reforms. Now, ultimately. I think this story is going to get worse for the government, not better. So if you wanted to do any lockdown restrictions, it's not like it distracts from the they have been. Yeah, like it's basically like, oh, God, we need to get we need to get the conversation off of COVID restrictions. Why don't we announce a bunch of COVID restrictions? It's then imagine that in a couple of days time, right, things they hadn't done this now. Things have continued to get worse in terms of cases, hospitalizations. The data from South Africa is mixed. Some of it's very positive, some of it's not. But let's say that the indicators all start to point in a more troubling direction. But at the same time, every day there's been more of the kind of like, we played Jenga. (laughs) Yeah, like someone got the twister out. Oh, and here's some pictures. Yeah, I mean, okay, maybe I'm being overly cynical, but I simply do not believe that if there was a party for aides and staff on the 18th, then the Prime Minister didn't at any point pop down, do a couple of selfies, do a bit of kind of like, well done for all you do. I just don't buy it. But let's say that all of that stuff starts to come out over the next couple of days, and then they're having to stand up and go, by the way, we need further restrictions. The parliamentary party, to use a technical term, beloved of political journalists, would lose its nut. Like, I mean, like, it just would would have been awful. So I think then what's driven the timing of this is a knowledge he may be too weak to do it in a week's time. Okay. Rather than them going, oh, here's a distraction. Yeah, I wanted to ask what 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 you think this whole story means for t- not only for the COVID measure that they might have to introduce further down the line, but also for Boris Johnson's sort of leadership in general. There was a Savanta Comres snap poll that said a majority of people think he should resign over this Christmas party story. Alva, what do you think? Well, I I was at a pub quiz in Peckham last night and um, a team that didn't win but that did very well was called Boris Johnson's Christmas Party. (laughs) 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 And I was like, this is is cut through. (laughs) Um, And I'm just really struck that I think that people are talking about whether this could be the beginning of the end for him. Um, I think that like lots of people who really do hold the line for him, even in sort of private conversations, mm. are indicating their displeasure more than they ever have before. Mm-hmm. And as we've spoken about on this podcast before, the thing that really does seem to rile the public up is the one rule for you, another for us, hypocrisy, um, which Labour have obvi- obviously gone quite big on. What have you made of Keir Starmer's response to this story so far? Yeah, I mean, I think I think he's played it pretty well, really. The difficulty with any with this kind of story politically when you're the opposition is it doesn't actually have any moving parts. Like, there obviously was a party... There obviously, I think, were clearly more than one party, right? Yeah. If you have a situation in which an email is being sent around, yeah, like a, a whole office global email about one party, at that point you clearly have an institutional culture where this is happening all the time. But absent sort of further information, pictures, video, things that you as the opposition can't control, you're, you can't really do anything to move the story on yourself. Um, the only thing you can do is kind of try and find ever sort of subtler gradations of like changing your demand. So you can go, well, day one, I've asked for this quite sort of, I can't even remember what the slightly milk toast kind of like, oh, well, we don't want this. Oh, actually, we do want this. Actually. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I think he also, now this is partly because uh, of Boris not being good on his feet, but he, he did also do very well to to force the kind of, yes, I will I will hand over this information to the police. Um, so yeah, he's, he's done, I think, a pretty good job of kind of keeping it alive and keeping Labour's role in it alive. Labour are the beneficiary if we look at the polls, but this is fundamentally an intra-conservative party story. I mean, I don't think it's the only reason um, why um, the leader's office was in not a great state going into 2021. But I think it is interesting that the Conservative Party has been working non-remotely in a much bigger way for a lot longer than the Labour Party was in lockdown. The Labour Party, you know, Essentially, the Labour Party took the view that work from home if you can and went, well, we can work from home. The Conservative Party took the view that they mostly couldn't work from home. I do think actually the Conservative Party was more effective politically in that phase, partly because uh, of that advantage. But really, this is about how the Conservative Party feels about those restrictions, how the Conservative Party feels about Boris Johnson. And everyone else is kind of a bit part player. But the trick if you're the leader of the opposition is to make it look like you're, you know, not a bit part player, then you are shaping events even when you in fact aren't. And I think thus far he's doing quite a good job on that one. Yeah, and I think it was the Mirror that originally broke this story that there might have been this party in Downing Street. And I think he kind of, because Keir Starmer mentioned it at that PMQs that that week, it gave it sort of legitimacy for places that otherwise might be a little bit cautious to have it as a headline because, of course, you can then report Keir Starmer asked Boris Johnson about alleged Christmas party. So I thought he did quite well on that. And I've been listening to sort of the the short little news bits about this and what always strikes me is that he sounds quite reasonable in what he's asking you know the prime minister should admit, admit it and apologize to the public he's not being you know for want of a better word hysterical about it and i think it's quite clever for labor to sort of be that kind of reasonable voice rather than the voice calling for him to resign as we've seen perhaps the public might 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 feel i just think that that clip is so significant though like more so than any of the rest of this story it's like the I just think it's there's a sort of beautiful irony to it that that was they spent millions of pounds creating this press conference room and a lot of money paying Allegra Stratton to be the face of those press briefings they were there to you know improve transparency with government improve the communications between government and the public they never happened. And the only thing that that room and that person have, have given us, apart from her work on COP, was this extraordinary insight into how people in Number 10 were speaking about the public when they thought that they weren't listening. I just think in terms of like the scrutiny function, I think that's, if it, like if that was in a film or a TV show, it would be a bit, it would be a bit much. Bit, bit, bit clunky. Yeah. Yeah. Some, someone, someone tweeted um, us the other day saying, you know, um, I wasn't sure about the introduction of Allegra Stratton as a character. I don't think they gave her much character development, but I think the way they've killed her off is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny that, you know, initially it didn't really make much sense, this role, because if you, th- we've we talked about this all the time. We've been baffled by it for a long time. Why would you ever think that that was a good idea to televise the lobby briefings? Mm, mm. It wouldn't look good. Like the obfuscation, like so much of that game is the prime minister spokesperson trying not to to say anything and and if it's you know if it's not televised or recorded and it's just print journalists taking quotes then actually you can manage to not answer the question yeah. 10 times and no one really notices you can't do that on tv it looks pretty bad um 
if you thought about it for a second, you'd see that this was a terrible idea. We've been wondering what the point was for ages, and now we know the gift it has given us, <laughs> and 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 and, it, and the way it doesn't even involve really any journalists. Like the only role that Paul Brand, who broke the the story mm. for my TV, all he's done is sort of you know reveal it to the world. But it's just it's just raw footage of people in number ten. I think that I just think that that's genius, and I think we'll be we'll be talking about that for years to come. I do love that it is this this cursed press room, right? You know, Dom Cummings, you know, wanted it because in like classic Cummings fashion, he's too preoccupied with the idea of who his enemies were. Because I think it's true to say that the two groups of people who would come across worse in the eyes of the public in the event of daily televised briefing would have been us, the media, and the government of the day because as Alva says, so much of the game is just them lying, obfuscating, looking a bit shifty. But... um. Spoiler alert, Dom, you don't actually need to defeat um, the media in a general election. Like, they're not the, <laughs> they aren't the other party. Um, but, you know, it destroyed Dominic Cummings, destroyed Lee Kane, you know, so it destroyed the architects of it. Now it's destroyed um, Allegra Stratton, the person who was going to be... It's just like, literally, if the NS tried to send me to report from there, I would be like, I am not going uh, in without cursed. a witch doctor, a rabbi, <laughs> a priest, you know, a couple of, you know, free preachers. I don't know, but it's like... There is bad juju in that room, um, and as you say, it's just, I just can you. I can't. It's just I, I love. I love them. There's a cursed press room right in the heart of of the British state. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get twelve weeks for twelve pounds. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe twelve. If you're enjoying the New Statesman podcast, you might also like the New Statesman's international news podcast, World Review, which is now published twice weekly. Here's our US editor, Emily Tamkin, to tell you more. Thanks, Anoush. That's right. Every Thursday, we unpack the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Make sure you never miss an episode. Just search World Review in your podcast app and subscribe. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Us. This is a question about drug policy reform. Why is it the dog that refuses to bark in terms of progressive politics, particularly with regards to Labour? So in, I thought, an attempt to try and talk about something different this week, um, the Conservative Party did announce a few, (laughs) well, I don't want to call them policies, a few aims to try and crack down on drug users as well as um, drug dealers. So... um, you know, the prospect of, of drug drug policy reform did come to light briefly at the beginning of this week. Um, why is it something that Labour never go hard on, given all of the evidence that cracking down isn't the way to sort out this? Well, yeah, this this is a really good, a, a very, it was a very long but very good 
good question. I'm sorry we had to truncate it down. Because one of the weird things is, is that although there are lots of people, you know, kind of in the Labour grassroots um, who who do want a different position on drugs, right? It is fascinating because it's a position with effectively no institutional champions in any bit of the Labour Party. You know, you have uh, Jeff Smith, the Labour MP for Manchester Withington, with his uh, APPG on drug policy reform. You have a handful of people smattered around the parliamentary party. But, you know, the Labour Party's policy on drugs, you know, was draconian under Jeremy Corbyn, is draconian and punitive under Keir Starmer. And I candidly don't think there is a plausible candidate of any faction of the Labour Party for whom that would change, you know, in the next couple of years, which is weird when you think about the broader changes, the New Zealand Labour Party, you know, well, the New Zealand Labour Party is now in a really weird position and they have a harm minimisation medical policy for um, illegal drugs and they've just unveiled this idea that they were going to try prohibition for cigarettes if you were born after 2008. So, well, let's, <laughs> it's a bold strategy. Let's see, let's see if it pays off for them, Cotton. Um, <laughs> but broadly, the parties of the left, you know, Hamon in, in, in France in the last presidential election, are in a kind of legalisation space, at least for cannabis. And actually, I think the big influence is actually the role of constituency surgeries, tenants associations, and kind of other sort of bits of civic functions than MPs do. Because when you ask Labour MPs about this, they will very, very rarely, in fact, the ones who talk about, oh, it's the party strategists are the ones who want the policy to change. But the people who defend the policy will always go, oh, in my surgery, I get loads of complaints about people hotboxing the lift. You know, people hate like the smell of it. They hate it in their local areas, you know. Um, which I think is a fascinating example, actually, of, of kind of this constituency surgery wagging the dog. Because, you know, at my tenants association meetings, like, you know, people do complain about it. The things people want are more CCTV on the estate. And then they complain about, like, the smell of weed in the lift and the smell of uh, weed in the stairwell. But that isn't actually the same as people. I mean, I complain about the smell of weed yeah. in, the, in the lift and the stairwell. But that isn't actually the same as people wanting a punitive drug policy. But I think within the sort of organisational bits of the Labour Party, particularly the Parliamentary Party, it, they kind of are seen as one and the same. And that is one of the reasons why it is that Labour is kind of a sort of weird political outlier. Uh, I don't think, to kind of touch on some of the other interesting things in this question, I don't think it's a kind of Nixon goes to China style thing where the right will have to move on it first. However, I would be surprised if the right didn't move on it the next time they're in opposition. And then if you'll say... Okay, Liz Truss may become Prime Minister sooner than that. But let's imagine that the Conservative Party has gone into opposition, you're Liz Truss, and you want to show some way that you're a bit liberal. Cannabis reform, I think, ticks a lot of boxes if you're Liz, Liz Truss. But yeah, I think it will be the right that moves on it first, but that's not about strategy or politics. It is about uh, what MPC and their constituency case surgeries. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's really interesting, Anush. I, I noticed um, that you didn't sound super impressed with the government's announcement <laughs> on, <laughs> on um, this, its big drugs plans um, that came out earlier this week. And you've covered this quite a bit and I know much more about it than I do, but I, I just find it striking because I'll come on to on, onto Labour's response in a minute, but I suppose my kind of interpretation of it and then I think why it's been tricky for Labour is that in a way it's a, I, I interpreted those announcements as a kind of tacit recognition from the government that its strategy over the past 10 years has like failed utterly. And in a way, 
what the announcement amounted to was like a near complete reversal of a lot of the cuts to um, to treatment for drug users and so on. And so even if um, there were other parts of that about potentially like casual drug users mm. having to, you know, hand over their passports and things like that, it seemed like actually at the heart of this was just a U-turn on those cuts and an acceptance that that hadn't been working. And then from Yvette Cooper, who was leading the response for Labour, I thought that that was interesting that actually Labour didn't feel empowered to criticise these proposals mm. in their own right, really. And instead, the response was more to say, look what you've done over the past 10 years. You haven't delivered on this. Like, you know, fatalities from drug use have gone up and up and up. And so now you have these plans to, you know, reverse that trend slightly. But will you actually be able to do it? But actually, there's in the Labour response, unless I missed it, there's basically kind of nothing about what's maybe wrong with these. And and clearly a more sophisticated argument, the one touched on in the question that Stephen was discussing is, you know, can you have a sophisticated, useful drugs policy that on the one hand is trying to support drug users and support rehabilitation and treatment and at the same time is punishing drug users? But Labour isn't really engaging with that question and if that's a, if that's a correct characterization of those plans, I th- I sort of thought that they maybe didn't go far enough, and maybe there's an awkward tension there. But it's it's sort of less less lean and mean and tough than it was packaged as being. Maybe. Yeah, I think it's quite. It was almost sort of obvious what they were trying to do, which is there's clearly a problem here that we've failed in the past decade to fix. You know, people are suffering and it's not working. So we need to put a little bit more focus on drug rehabilitation and addiction services, you know, which have basically been torn to shreds over the past 10 years. So you could see that. And obviously, you know, while successive Conservative and coalition governments faults that those services haven't been nurtured, you can't really oppose the fact that they want to put money back into them and U-turn, like you say. But it's quite, you know, it's quite obvious what the the government were trying to do, which is we'll need we need to wrap it up in some tough on crime, tough on the woke who do coke kind of to join the dots with the rest of what our rhetoric is like. So I think that made it doubly difficult for Labour because, of course, like you say, they they had to sort of highlight what what they got wrong over the past ten years, but couldn't really oppose them trying to put it right. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, one of Labour's big things is going quite hard on antisocial behaviour, which is also gone up. And I don't know whether you guys have found this, but every by-election that we've covered this year or anywhere that we've gone to go out reporting, it always, always mm. comes up. Yeah, 100%. And, and antisocial behaviour in a lot of people's minds, you know, including people who live around me. And Stephen, you were describing um, sort of the tenants' um, issues on your estate it is linked in people's minds to drug dealing and sort of casual drug use and, you know, people sitting around in cars or hanging around um, making noise and and the, the smell of weed and all of this stuff that people just really, really hate. And that is something I think that Labour has picked up on and wants to go quite hard on. It was mentioned in, in Keir Starmer's conference speech and it's quite difficult for the government to counter it because, like you've written, Stephen, you know, it's difficult for police to actually <laughs> police at the moment and it's difficult for uh, a lot of cases to be taken to court and there's a huge backlog and there's a big problem with the criminal justice system. So it's a weak point for the Conservatives that Labour want to go hard on. So if they start sounding soft on drugs, then it might contradict that that sort of bruise that they want to punch that the government has. So I think, um, and, I, you know, I promise that not 
every week will me be me going, hey guys, do you remember the 2010 to 2015 period and how the Labour Party's position on crime and just crime, immigration and justice was incoherent, a bit of a mess, and maybe it wouldn't be a good idea to repeat that. But <coughs> I think the problem we saw this week is that the art of day-to-day opposition is also about where you want to be at the next election. And it obviously makes sense for where the Labour Party to be at the next election to go, OK, lads, you have all of these punitive announcements, but you aren't going to be able to enforce them, right? There's a chart which does the rounds occasionally. I've tweeted it again recently, so you can see it on, on my Twitter feed, which is basically essentially a kind of should you investigate chart on the Met, where essentially it's basically... If there's C- unless there's CCTV and the damage is like, you know, this person is going to become a recluse or they've had all of the money they're ever going to own stolen from them, don't bother. And I think then where Labour wants, needs to be is is ridiculing that stuff, you know, just pointing out that basically the government has legalised essentially every offence other than murder and speeding when there's a camera. Um, <laughs> but... You've kind of got to be aware that that's what you want to pull the conversation towards. I thought the big problem with their response to the the sort of drug announcement is just like it's like okay, well, do you want it to be that? Do you do you want to like avoid getting to some abstract debate about drug reform? Do you want it to be X Y Z? Because um, there is, I think, absolutely no conflict between having a more liberal position on drug reform and pointing out that the government cannot enforce the law. It's just you've got to decide where your end destination is. And I do think that's not just in home affairs, but the big question mark over this political project that Labour has is does it actually have a political project that it wants to get to or does it just want to find sort of pressure points to inconvenience the Tories day to day? Except that maybe it's fine for them, in, in in terms of shaping an argument, maybe it works that their response was to look at the Conservatives' drug strategy over the past decade as a whole. Because if you start taking it from this point, 2021, and reversing some cuts and some, you know, some things that could work as well as some things that they won't be able to enforce, but like investing in, in more things and opening up more rehabilitation centres and so on, um, if you just engage with that, which might be the kind of the offer from the Conservatives at the next election, like building new hospitals or whatever it is, then you get in quite a tricky in a quite a tricky space, which is what we saw in 2019. It was hard to argue against more investment or building schools mm. or hospitals or whatever. Whereas I think maybe they are trying to build an argument that takes a holistic look at you know, at the government's record in power since 2010. And maybe that's, maybe that is a fine way of doing it to actually, I mean, if they, even if they begin to slightly reverse the trend in drug fatalities, they won't get it back to where it was pre-2010 anytime soon, even even according to their own targets. And maybe that is just what they're going to have to keep doing. I like to talk about this as an old government and it's kind of trying to reverse some of its own mistakes from earlier in the decade. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.